Bruce Larson, UPC's senior pastor from 1980 to 1990, passed away on December 15th. In honor of him, we're posting several of his sermons from his years at UPC. A beloved pastor and friend, Reverend Larson impacted countless lives, and his legacy of books and sermons will continue to share his wisdom and love. If you saw me smile as I walked into the pulpit just now, it's because some unknown dear friend, knowing I was preaching on heaven and hell, left a button here that says, read your Bible, it could scare the hell out of you. Let's hope so. Let's read our Bible. We're reading the good news from John's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let us pray. Lord, be quick among us now by your Spirit that we may receive the gift of belief and therefore of life eternal. In your name, amen. Advent says journey, a coming to, a journey of truth and a journey filled with hope. We spoke last Sunday about truth, and today we talk about the hope. You know, we are a strange group of pilgrims on this journey in this year of our Lord. I'm sure we must look very strange to the angels and to even the Father who has gathered us together. We are a strange group of people. Something happens out here in our society and there are people who do not have enough, who are suffering lack. And some of you are mercy people, uh, like Gloria Cole, and you gather your friends in a yellow school bus and make 500 sandwiches and go down and begin to feed people. Others of us are justice people. We write books about how unfair it is. We hold workshops around the country and go down to Pickett and Olympia. Two different approaches to a human need. 
how can we be so different and be one people? We're all peacemakers. Some of you say we need more arms to ensure peace. Some say no arms, unilateral disarmament. Some of you are pro-life and some of you are pro-choice, each saying, but what about the rights of the unborn? But what about the rights of the mother? Here we are in one family. Some of you are Republicans and some of you are Democrats. How can we live together? Maybe you heard Bob Hope say recently that um, Walter Mondale felt that God should not be in politics. And apparently God felt the same way about Walter Mondale. <laughs> what is it that binds us together? We are such a different people, all peacemakers, all concerned about love and justice, and yet here we are, so different. My good friend Robert Schuler did a private poll, hired an outside secular company, and polled thousands of leaders in the Christian church, all denominations, what is the most pressing problem, he said, that you'd like to see answered? And 65% of the leaders said, what is the purpose of the church? Can you believe that? Why are we here? And I think we find some frustrated old liberals that are still in seats of power in the church and ecumenical gatherings who are saying that the kingdom of God and the new society in this world is the same. Of course you're frustrated if you equate the kingdom of God with the thing we're trying to all build and improve on here in our society. So what do we have in common? I maintain just two things. We have a common Lord, the one we worship. Jesus has called us. And we have a common destiny. We are going someplace beyond this life. Those are the two things that we really have in common. We are all going somewhere beyond this life. Now, you, you, you uh, salespeople tell us there's, there's two kinds of two concepts, sales and merchandising. Sales is getting people to buy what's in your warehouse, what you can now make. Merchandising is finding out what people want and making it. Well, I'm for sales and I'm for merchandising, and certainly we ought to hear what people's needs are in the church as we go out, each one of us commissioned to minister. But sales are, what have we been entrusted with? We have been entrusted with news about what life is all about beyond this life. This life, yes, but beyond. Now, Christianity is the most materialistic of all the religions. Make no mistake about that. The others that are more spiritual let human suffering go unchecked in their land. They say, we're going to meditate. And Christians for 2,000 years have gone out and started hospitals and schools and orphanages and, and changed laws. We care about matter, people, things. Not only that, as we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. What does that mean? It means you and I as Christians believe we go someplace to a real place and we're going to be real people. In other words, you won't be a spook when you die. What will your resurrection body look like? I don't know. But you will have something, substance and form. So, therefore, heaven and hell, the subject of this sermon, is about real places for real people. Robert Browning, the poet, said, there may be a heaven, but there must be a hell. He understood that. You know, how can you have one thing without the opposite? How can you have health without sickness? How can you have life without death? How do you know it's life? Because you have death to contrast it. How can you have joy without sadness? How can you have hope without there being the possibility of despair or justice without injustice? So heaven and hell means there is, a, there, are, there is a life beyond with two very different dimensions. The timeless truth is that heaven and hell are eternal things.
and they will go on. Now, what does Jesus say about them? Well, in this theme on life-changing conversations, if I were with him then or now, I'd say, I'm curious about heaven and hell. Uh, you know, what about them? How real are they? And uh, what do they look like? Now, the truth is that Jesus spoke frequently about heaven and hell. Our text this morning says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He speaks often and often about heaven. What does he say about heaven? What things can we know from his own word from the Bible? We know that heaven is a place where God is present. If God is there, being God, he is the center. And all things revolve around him. It's God's home. We know also that, that heaven is Jesus' home. He came from there. We know that from our scripture this morning. Philippians 2 tells us that. That's where he, he who is the creator, the son, the redeemer, came from there, came among us as a baby, became a man, was crucified. But heaven is his home, the place to which he returned. And also we know that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven seem to be equated all through Scripture, all through Jesus' words. They are apparently the same thing. And then we learn that the most important thing for you and me, in Luke 10.20, Luke 10.20 we discover Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the evil spirits are subject to you, that you have power to heal, to bless, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the bottom line. That beyond whatever we do as politicians and helpers and missionaries and ministers and pastors and people here in this life, there is an eternal destiny. And he says, rejoice that your name is written there. Now, what is hell like from Scripture, from Jesus' word? Hell is real. Jesus speaks about hell frequently. There are two words that describe hell. One is Hades, which means the unseen world. And Gehenna, which means a place of destruction and burning and stink. It's the name of a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And hell is a place for burning. Now, I suggest to you that is not bad imagery, for we know that when God is not in our lives, not in my life, I burn with rage, anger. I burn with lust. I burn with envy. And the burning causes all kinds of internal physical problems. But burning it seems to be a symptom of life without God at the center. We know that hell is a place without God. God is absent. Therefore, there is no center in hell. If in the other world, if you're not in heaven, you're at a place without a center, which means I am the center. And I can't think of a better description of hell than a place with lots of eyes, lots of egos, all trying to occupy center stage. You want to know what hell is like? It's a marriage between two people that are not Christians or not practicing Christians, where each one tries to be the center of the marriage and make the other a satellite around them. Two egos bumping and clanging, saying, why won't you do what I want? This is what I demand. I said, no, this is what I demand. And you have clang, clash, bang. Now, multiply that times millions. you got a picture of hell. Everybody's saying, why won't you all dance to my tune? Be what I want. And so hell with no center is a place of terrible clanging and clashing and collisions. Now, those are the things we know about heaven and hell. Now, you can speculate beyond that. Suppose you could say, Jesus, well, beyond that, give us some description of the architecture and the temperature, what people are like there. Well, people have done that. It's a very dangerous thing. Real estate uh, salesman was trying to sell some 
Washingtonian on a big chunk of land in Texas on this dry, arid part of our country. And he says, you know, all you need is some good people and some good water, and this could be a paradise. The guy says, that's all hell needs. <laughs> and speaking of Texas, it's like the, the same guy was uh, with a friend down there, and he saw a great splashy uh, bit of color crossroads. What was that? Why, that was a bird of paradise. He said, my, he's a long way from home. Now, I'm not suggesting Texas is hell. I'm just suggesting that uh, it's hard to speculate on what hell is really like or what heaven is like. But I think the best deductive reasoning I know comes from C.S. Lewis on his marvelous book on heaven and hell, The Great Divorce. I'm sure most of you have read that. If not, you'll love it. But what do we know then to deduce? First of all, we know that no one is sent to hell or kept from heaven. Think about that. God does not send people to hell or heaven. And I have stood by the deathbeds of a number of people over the years who said, I'm not a believer. And if when I die, I find I'm wrong, I'm not going to change my mind. Who sends them anywhere? It's a choice. I'd rather be right in hell than to say I was wrong and be in heaven. So if we believe scripture, grace is abundant for everyone. God wills that no one be lost. What God says to people uh, who insist on saying I'll have it my way is all right. I, I will contend with you no more. Have it your way. And hell is the place people go when God finally gives up and says, well, have it your way. You say, I will. That's something we know about hell. Further, we know from the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell. What does that mean? It means, as C.S. Lewis deduces in his book, that even if you are in hell in the next life, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, is there and makes it possible for someone to leave. Lewis deduces, if you haven't made up your mind in this life, the odds are very slim that you'll change your mind in the next life. Now is the best time to decide. The second thing is there's no merit system. How do you get in? You know that terrible joke uh, where a man dies and goes to heaven, or a woman, as you will, and there's the gatekeeper, and the big thing says entrance requirement, a thousand points. This, uh, let's take, make it a man. Let's make it a Presbyterian preacher who says, now, uh, I'm ready to be, uh, present my credentials. He said, you know, I have never missed church in 40 years. Beyond that, I never missed Sunday school as a boy. I have a perfect attendance record for 70 years. And the gatekeeper says, marvelous, that's one point. <laughs> so he thinks, he said, now I've been a tither twice over. I, I give, I've been given 20% of my income for 40 years. Marvelous, one more point. Why, well, said, I've never lied, I've never cheated, I've never stolen, and so on. Marvelous, one more point. You've got three points. In despair, this preacher says, my goodness, it would take the grace of God. Marvelous, 1,000 points. It's not a point system. It's not a matter of saying, have I earned, do I deserve? Uh, Robert E. Speer, one of our great Presbyterian leaders earlier in this century, was asked if he was going to write his autobiography. He said, no, if the Lord shall hide my sins, I shall not parade my virtues. So God hides our sins. We come in, as Luther said, love God and sin boldly. And our text says that Jesus cares that we be there. He's prepared a place, and it's marvelous. Furthermore, there's no pretense. It's reality versus appearance. I'm sure hell is full of people showing off. And heaven's a place where you can come warts and all. You open your coat, and there you are. You needn't pretend. William Barclay, whose commentaries I'm sure you all know and love, wrote 50 books, 50 commentaries. And Barclay says, you know what my problem is? Laziness. At heart, I am a lazy person. 
Now, you see, in heaven, you can say, I'm a lazy person. You can say, I'm slothful. Lord, I wasn't prophet. He says, I know, I know. No more pretense. It's a place for reality. Hell is for good people. And heaven is for people who know they are not good and who believe in the grace of God, the great gift. That's what our whole scripture is about. And it starts right now. Death, you see, why do you think death will change you? If you've seen people very old about to die, what reason is there to believe that somehow when breath stops in this life, they'll wake up in some other existence radically transformed? I've, I've been with enough people that are dying who are already in the next world. The joy is there, the certainty, they can't wait. Others live in fear and dread and anger. They're burning already. So, as Art Greer says, if you don't like, like now, you're going to hate heaven. And think about Stephen. In cha sixth chapter of Acts, the first Christian martyr was a deacon. And uh, it says as he, is, uh, as, as he is being stoned by the people then, it says, Behold, Stephen says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In this life, he sees the whole thing. He sees heaven. He's in heaven. He's stoned. He dies. And Paul, standing there before he became the apostle, can't believe what he sees. Now, Pastor, if you think this is a large church, there's a church of 400,000 members in Korea, a Pentecostal church. Pastor Cho tells the story about a congresswoman from South Korea that he knows in his congregation. This woman, when the invasion came from the north, uh, she um, could not flee with all the other leaders. So because when the, when the communists came down from the north, all she could do was stay behind for, for various reasons. She went to her closet and got her oldest clothes, tore them into rags, and I was a beggar in the streets. But they caught her. You know why? Her soft hands gave her away. She wasn't a peasant. They put her in jail. They interrogated her, and she would tell nothing. So... Uh, She's going to be shot. She goes to sleep in her cell one night in her rags, sleeping on the floor. Next morning, a young man stands there with a rifle to her head to march her out to dig her own grave to shoot her and put her in it. So as she wakes up, she's walking along with this young North Korean soldier. And she's thinking about her life. She's going to see this world for the last time. She's the beauty of it, her homeland, thinking about her family, her friends, her education, her privileged position, a church member all her life, she said. But she never said to the Lord, I trust you. I've never accepted you as my Lord and Savior, a church member, but not a Christian. He says, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I accept you now as my Lord and Savior. And then something tremendous happened inside of her. Peace came and joy. And she began to sing a hymn she knew, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And she's filled with joy and peace. And as she gets to the place where she's going to be shot, uh, she, uh, the, the guard says to her, Stop that singing. She said, Why should I stop? You're going to kill me anyway. I want to go to my death praising and singing to my Lord who has just now saved me and I know where I will be and who I am. So she begins to dig her grave and she finishes it. And this young Korean says, North Korean says, well, he said, uh, is there a last thing you want to say before you're, you're shot? She says, not really. Oh, wait a minute. I would like to pray one last time. He says, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this magic moment this morning when you have come into my life. And I know who I am and where I will be. And I thank you. And Lord, I pray for this young man here. I pray that someday before he dies, he will know what I know and know you as his Lord and Savior. Amen. She says, you may shoot me now. <laughs> Nothing happens. She said, didn't you hear me? Louder, you can shoot me now. He says, I can't shoot you. 
The last time someone prayed like that for me was my mother. And you remind me of my mother. She says, you have to shoot me or the authorities will get mad at you. He says, I can't shoot you. So he shoots his gun in the sky and says, run away. And she ran away and her life was spared. Now I say, suppose she had been killed. When did she enter heaven? Was it a future thing or a present thing? Well, you know. And that's the gift God gives us. Good news. The good news is what? The good news is Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The good news is that God wants you in heaven. The good news is you'll have to fight your way into hell. Don't do that. Let God have his way with you and give you what he wants to give you. If you've never done that before, this Advent Sunday would be a marvelous time to discover that heaven is real. It's for you and me now and forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal one, and we go to an eternal place. And now if there is one here, Lord, who has never said yes, yes, I believe, I receive, I accept. Lord, hear that one now, that the angels may sing. Amen.